to the Mad Max Minute, where nothing starts off the week quite like a punch in the face from Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 67, which begins with Savannah getting a taste of the wasteland, and it ends with Max actually eating a hot meal for once. Good Monday morning, Julia. Happy Monday. We are alone again this week to talk about that critical moment where Max has run up to Savannah after unsuccessfully trying to intimidate her with the rifle. And he's run up, grabbed her by the shoulder, spun her around, and now they are face to face. And so Max raises his hand and prepares to strike. And that's where we're at here at the top of today's minute. So he raises his hand and he pauses for a moment. I feel like this is the moment of truth. This is where he gets to decide what kind of man he's going to be. Yeah. The way I see it, he's got two choices. He can fall back on what the Wasteland has taught him over a decade and a half of wandering, or he can evolve his tactics to reflect the individual he's dealing with. He's not dealing with a raider or someone who's trying to shank him for gas. He's dealing with someone who he has a disagreement with, a different ideology. They're not trying to hurt him. They're just trying to leave. So he has a decision. Is it better to take the soft approach? Or to give Savannah an example of just how brutal the outside world can be. Crap. I mean, you answered that in a way that completely took me away from my notes. This is definitely a type of situation that he has never seen before. Mm -hmm. There really is nothing in it for him. He has found this oasis, whether or not there are other people here, he can survive in this oasis. He doesn't need them. So him stopping Savannah so forcefully is really for her own good and for the good of the community as a whole. Yeah. I am taken aback by how Max has chosen to handle the situation so violently and with so much intimidation. And it's almost like this was the inevitable conclusion. And maybe at the end, right before the punch, he realizes that this was the inevitable conclusion of his tactics. And maybe at the beginning, this wouldn't be what he might have chosen. Mm -hmm. I have to wonder if Max pauses because he remembers all those years ago talking to Fifi. He said something along the lines of, I don't know how long I can be out there before I become one of them. One of those people who resort to violence and brutality in order to get their way, as opposed to being the kind of person who uploads some sort of moral code and civil law. And so Max is sitting there with his hand up and he's like, have I just become another raider beating people into submission. It's interesting that you say that. The novelization, which we're not going to talk about yet. We're not going to talk about it until later on this week. Okay. But the novelization addresses some of those types of thoughts. Really? Yes. The picture book does not. Yeah, I'm not surprised. There's a missing scene that is just not in the movie at all Mm -hmm. that we really get a peek inside Max's head. 
Oh, good. Which it gets quite deep at times. So I'm not surprised that that didn't translate to the movie or to the picture book. Mm. But I'm very excited to tell you all about it. Yeah. Funny enough, the picture book does not mention anything about Max hitting Savannah. It's pretty much Max runs up, grabs Savannah, and then it skips right to the end of today's minute where Max tells slake and the other hunters to grab the ones that are trying to leave so the kids book completely glosses over all of this punching stuff but before we get to the actual punch we get another shot of savannah and she doesn't flinch i love this so much i give her so much credit max is a complete wild card and what he has shown of his abilities is very dangerous so to have this man walk up to you and raise his fist to you and you stand there defiantly is incredibly impressive. It also made me wonder how the waiting ones handle confrontation, how they handle differing opinions. There's no way that it's all sunshine and flowers in this community. There are going to be disagreements. There's going to be fights. Has Savannah ever been punched in the face like this before? Has she seen actions like this? Does she know what he's about to do? I think the big question is when these kids have disagreements, when they get into fights, do they swing at each other and slap and scratch and whatnot? Or do they have some sort of I don't want to call it a combat tradition or even something remotely connected to an actual fighting style, but does it involve punches at all? I feel like when you're dealing with punches, a fist is a rather basic shape that you can put your hand in, but I think when you look at small children and how they fight, it's a lot of slapping and scratching, not a lot of punching with what we would typically think of a jab or a hook or even an uppercut. I would think that Exactly, yeah. That their fighting style may not be so deliberate as a close-fisted punch. That it's more kicking, biting, scratching, which in the novelization, Max does not punch her in the face. He grabs her and she, exactly what we just said, bites him and she scratches and she kicks and she fights with everything she's got. But she does so consciously, not the unconscious person that Max flings over his shoulder in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> she is awake and fighting the whole time. Okay. I'm looking at this shot of Savannah being defiant. And I like that she's not kicking and fighting and biting and scratching because I feel like her standing there is a bit more dignified. Because at the end of the day... She's considered an adult. She has her pride and her dignity, even if she's been raised out in the wilderness and whatnot. However, her confidence in herself is kind of foolish because, yeah, she took the leaving, but she wandered out in the sand. She didn't actually meet anybody else. And so she's listening to everything that Max says. And this is going back to what I said before, the whole idea of they only believe what they've seen before. They don't believe anything that they haven't set their eyes on. And so she doesn't realize that there are other people out there that would want to do her harm. Max, on the other hand, is specifically worried about the people who would do them harm, which goes back to the whole Slake saying, you slog out to nothing, Max saying, oh, worse than nothing. There's bad people out there, and she just doesn't know. There is so much miscommunication in this whole situation. Mm -hmm. If the three adults had just sat down and talked about it and gotten details, Max could have told his story. Exactly how long did it take him to walk through that sand? How long of a journey should the waiting ones be prepared for if they're going to try it? 
Max should have said more explicitly, these are the types of people that you're going to meet out there. This is what they're going to do to you. As lovely as that idea sounds. Yeah. <laughs> we're also dealing with Savannah. Who's not waiting around anymore. She's a woman of action. She's dead set on doing it, which is exactly what this glare is all about, at least as far as I can interpret it. I agree. She's not interested in Max's word stuff. Nope. <laughs> not anymore. So... We cut back to Max. He balls up his fist and punches Savannah right across the chin. Ultimately, Max does go the wasteland route. This stage punch is pretty good at normal speed. He swings his fist. We cut real quick, and it shows Savannah taking it on the chin and going right down. Then I went through and I clicked through it frame by frame. And when you break it down that minutely, the staginess of the punch really comes through. Because as Max swings his fist, there's a distance between his face and Savannah's face. And that fist goes pretty much right between them, equidistance between the faces. And then when they cut to the other angle behind Max, you can see that Savannah's face just follows the path of the chin, making it look like he actually connected with her. And so I jumped on YouTube and I watched a video about how to do a stage punch, and it was actually really surprising how many of the steps they listed in the video were on display here in the minute. So the five simple steps of doing a stage punch. Step one, you establish your distance. Step two, you get eye contact between the two actors. Step three, you cue the punch. Step four, you punch past the other person's face at a rough distance away from, you know, any punchable area. And then step five, the person pretending to be punched follows the motion of the fist in order to sell the illusion. So step one is when Max has Savannah by the shoulder. He's establishing a distance between the two of them so that Savannah doesn't lean forward or lean back or do anything to alter that distance. They have definite eye contact in that stare down. He's got his hand up so she knows exactly where his hand is going to be. It's very choreographed as he balls it up and then he swings through and like I mentioned, it's a fist right between the two of their faces, and so she's able to see it pass, and then as it passes, we see her head whipped to the side, and she really sells it by falling over. It has always seemed to me that the difficult part about those five steps is the timing of step five. Mm -hmm. It really feels like that's where their skill and practice involved. So when they make it look good, I find that impressive. I definitely feel like the angles are helping a lot. Yeah. Because when Max is initially punching, it's coming towards the camera. And then when we cut to the other angle, that camera is perpendicular to the path of the fist. So we get to see it coming at us more or less. And then we get to see it travel across the way. And it just really works. And I feel like Helen Boudet is definitely the standout part of this. Yes, Max is the one that throws the punch, but Helen fully commits to whipping her head to the side and then falling over. And she goes down like a barrel of bricks. Yeah. At about this moment, just a little bit after she falls down, there's a noise. Okay. That sounds like a gunshot. And it's after she falls. It's not the sound of her falling to the ground. It's just after that. And I'm sure it's part of the music or part of the climax of the moment that there is this like loud, sudden sound. But it sounds like a gunshot. I completely missed that. I had to listen to it a couple of times to really catch it and really find the 
moment when it happened and to decide that it didn't really match up with anything that's happening in the scene. Mm -hmm. It almost sounds like maybe Slake had picked up the rifle and was playing with it like, oh, (laughs) I saw it do this thing. Can I make it do that thing? Yeah. And then it went off at that moment. It's kind of what it sounds like. Okay. Yeah, that's weird. I completely missed that. Yeah. As savannah goes down i go back to that discussion we were having just a little while ago where we were talking about biting and scratching and pulling hair and things like that i think there's a very good chance that savannah has never been full-on punched before never felt the full force of a directed strike quite like a punch delivers especially not by a man in his full strength exactly she has not known very many men in their full strength. Slake is the closest thing to a full-grown male in this camp, and yeah. even he's not quite as big and strong as Max. No. He's probably more lithe, more able to hunt in the underbrush and zip line around, but... No, nah, but he's not done growing. Exactly. He's still got some way to go before he reaches Max levels of physicality. So as I mentioned... Savannah goes down, and the other kids behind her just kind of watch her drop. Yeah, they don't seem too phased by what they just witnessed. I'm not sure how they were supposed to react. Right. I was kind of thinking the same thing. Like, do I want them to be surprised? Do I want them to be scared? Do I want them to be angry and to try and retaliate? I'm not sure how I want them to react. Right. But their lack of reaction stood out to me. I do appreciate that they didn't go in some sort of weird line where every time one got punched, the next one stood up to face Max next. (laughs) Because punching Savannah is one thing, but punching Kusha or Mr. Skyfish or Finn, that would be a bit much. Yeah, Max only physically hurt Savannah because he felt he had to. In his previous violent warnings of the gunshots he never intended to hurt anybody they were warning shots they were hey look what i can do but then he walks up to her and he punches her in the face this is a completely different level yeah like okay yeah you just shot a gun at them and that's kind of on its own level you think it's like pretty bad but he didn't hit them and so the contrast of him walking up to savannah and punching her in the face that is another level Mm. he purposefully hurt her and i don't think he enjoyed it i don't think he wants to do it again he did it because he had to You look at his expression, and you can almost imagine him saying the phrase, this hurts me a lot more than it hurts you, using that disappointed father line. Right. Yeah, I was going to say that. It's very parental. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Max has been picking up surrogate family members inadvertently for years, and Mm. this is just the latest round of surrogate family that he's found, even if he might not necessarily want them. That's where we're at. So it's probably a good thing that... Max never had to deal with Sprague being a teenager. I know I've mentioned this very idea before, the whole Sprague wanting to go out on a Saturday night and tool around with his hoon friends. And Max can't always punch him in the face because <laughs> that's just bad parenting. But after Max punches Savannah, one thing that I do appreciate is that he takes a breath, calms down a little bit, and then leans down to pick Savannah up. He doesn't leave her lying there like a sack of beans. He picks her up like a sack of beans in order to bring her back to the camp. He does so with ulterior motives, as we see by the end of this minute. Well, yeah, but... He's going to tie her up, but he's doing it himself. 
And he's doing it with care. He could have dragged her, but he's still treating her humanely. More or less. I feel like you can more humanely carry someone. Like if he had cradled her up in his arms instead of throwing her over his shoulders. But when you're picking someone up off the ground, the fireman's carry is just the easiest way to do it. Right, because that's how you can do it and still walk up and down stairs slash ladders. Exactly. And then as Max is carrying Savannah back to the camp, Max yells out for Slake to get the others. Yeah, Max certainly has a way of taking charge. Mm -hmm. And if this society was more political, this would not fly. I feel like it flies for the simple reason that Max and Slake both want everyone to stay in the crack in the earth. Slake and Max's goals are aligned right now. And it's one thing to say, Slake, get the others, bring them to me. I've got a plan to keep them in place. Like, that's one thing. But if Max had punched out Savannah, said Slake gets the other, and then they dragged them back to the center camp, and he's like, all right, we're going to do something extreme, like tie ropes to their ankles and toss them in the river or something like that. At that point, Slake would be like, no, we're not going to drown people. That's not what we do. So you don't think that them tying up the levers wasn't already extreme? No, I think Max looked at Slake and said, these people are going to try to leave. We can keep them from leaving by tying them up. And Slake would look at that situation and be like, yeah, that's very true. If they are tied to poles, then they will not leave and they will not go off into the nothing. Yeah, that, that sounds a bit extreme to me. Well, how else would you keep them in camp? They've already demonstrated that they will not listen. They will not be convinced. They are determined to leave. And Slake has got it in his head that no one should leave. So tying them up is the simplest, least long-term affecting solution to keeping them in camp. I hadn't really thought about it until just now, the morality of preventing people from leaving when they have expressed a desire to leave. And thinking about it, I know that there are reasons to keep them there, but who is Max and Slake to take away their free will? Why do Max and Slake get to make the decisions for Savannah and the others? Max and Slake have different reasons for not wanting them to leave. Max knows what kind of dangers exist in the wasteland, and Slake is well aware of the dangers that exist in the desert. The way that Slake looks at it, they're going to wander out in the desert, run out of water, and then just die. The yeah. way Max looks at it, they're going to wander out in the desert, run into raiders or wastelanders, and get enslaved and die. The way that Max and Slake look at the situation, it's that the Leavers are more or less committing suicide, but with more steps in between. And so the idea of preventing these people from leaving, in their eyes, is a noble effort, and one that is life-saving. It's not like they're keeping Savannah around so that way they have someone to tend to fire. That would be a side effect of having more people in the camp, but they don't want harm to come to these people that they care about. The more I think about it, the more I have a problem with this. We know, because we've seen the movie, that going out there is tantamount to suicide. Slake believes as much, Max knows as much. They have both communicated their concerns and their knowledge to the group of leavers. The group of leavers disagree. They don't see it that way. They don't see that if they leave and go out and walk out into the desert, they are essentially committing suicide. They don't see it that way. So why does Slake and Max get to prevent them? They're not committing suicide on purpose because in our society, committing suicide can be viewed as a crime. You're not allowed to kill people. 
even yourself. Mm -hmm. It still counts as killing someone if you're doing it to yourself. But they're not trying to kill themselves. They're trying to accomplish something different and they're willing to die trying. And I fail to see how Slake and Max have any right to prevent them. And that's definitely from a modern sensibility. They yeah. have their own code and rules and morality and system of doing things within the waiting one society. But having said that, they still have a tradition in the society of the leaving. Right. So it's not like they're unfamiliar with the idea of you're going to go out, try and find help, and most likely you're going to die, but you're going to do it anyways for the good of the group. So all of a sudden they've changed their mind. Exactly. That's the big shift that has come over since Slake and... I would assume others in the tribe have become disillusioned with the myth that someone is coming for them. Now the general idea has shifted to no one's coming for us. We need to dig in and just live here. We don't need the knowing. We can live here. That's the mindset they've shifted to. I hate to dig out old cliches and, well, who am I kidding? I love digging out old cliches, <laughs> but I see it akin to the if all your friends are jumping off a bridge guilt trip. We are... More or less on a bridge, Savannah is on the railing, Max and Slake are standing off to the side, and Max and Slake are saying, do not jump off of this bridge, you will get hurt or die, and Savannah is saying, no, I will jump off this bridge, damn the consequences. Well, yeah, she's saying, no, I'm gonna jump off this bridge, because if I don't die, then there might be something great for me downriver. And it's her own choice, it is her own choice choice nobody is being forced to go would max and slake be complicit and this is sticking with the bridge thing if savannah jumped off the bridge and did die would max and slake be complicit in her death because they told her not to and did not stop her no they communicated the information that they had max said there are rocks at the bottom of the river and if you jump and you hit your head on a rock you're gonna die but it's not a guarantee Mm -hmm. But he communicated the information that he had. Not well, I will definitely give you that. He did not communicate his information well. Yeah. But he did try to stop her. And in this bridge analogy, he went ahead and pulled her down off the ledge and tied her up. I think that's a step too far. I imagine that Max's intent was to let them cool off overnight and then in the morning he would explain better why he didn't want them to leave. Let everybody calm down from the day before, but this is Max we're talking about. Would he really sit down with Savannah and have a little heart to heart and be like, hey, listen, kiddo, there are things called slavers. They're awful people. <laughs> yeah, Max is a crappy communicator. And do you think there has ever been a person who was all riled up and by virtue of being tied up overnight, cooler heads prevailed? Oof. No, no. I just find it hard to believe that someone could keep up the energy required to be furious for that long. But then again... You've never been tied up overnight. You've never been held captive. That's very true. There are captives. I'm thinking specifically of... Prisoners of war who for months keep fighting, who keep trying to escape and keep rebelling against their captors because it's what they're supposed to do. And they should not be captives and they want to be set free. And they do this months. And that's on top of torture and mistreatment and starvation and freezing temperatures and boiling temperatures. It's on top of all of that. But they keep going. Mm. They keep fighting. They don't cool down overnight. 
So at the end of the day, Max and Slake should have let Savannah and the others just leave. Certainly at the end of the day, because as we're going to find out this week, they go anyways. Yeah. So in hindsight, yes, absolutely. They should have just let them go. But even ignoring hindsight and just working in the moment. Yes, they should have let them go. I guess I can see that. I guess I can understand where you're coming from. I'm definitely more on Max's side just because he has the experience and he tried to share and she's more disregarding it. And the idea that someone offers you information and you hear that information and then make a decision that goes against that information anyway. Like, I will admit, you are right. As humans, we have the ability to dictate our own destiny and choose our paths in life. I just get a little bothered when someone says that panhandle is hot, don't touch it. And then someone says, oh yeah. And then they grab the panhandle and it burns their hand. It's like, okay, yes, you get to choose your destiny, but you heard information and you did something contrary to that information anyway. And it just, I don't know. It's probably just a personal pet peeve of mine. (laughs) That reminds me of the argument that we hear a lot in the United States where we have free speech. Some people will use that free speech to say whatever they want and then get bent out of shape when other people get upset with them Mm -hmm. saying, well, I'm just exercising my free speech. You are free to speak. You are free to leave the community. You are free to do anything you want as long as you're not hurting other people, but you are not free from the consequences. If you touch that panhandle, you're going to burn yourself. And yes, you are free to touch the panhandle, but you also have to experience the consequences. Just because the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution protects you from the police coming and taking you away because you say things doesn't mean that your neighbors aren't going to think you're an awful person. Right. (laughs) Exactly. They are free to leave the community, but that's not going to save them from dying. Yeah, that's very true. So as we've said, Max has the folks that are leaving tied up and lashed to these support beams that are part of a platform that's above them. It looks like Gecko and Finn are tied around the same pole. Kusha and Skyfish and Savannah each have their own spots. And then all of them have rags or sticks or gags of some kind placed in their mouths to keep them from shouting and being loud and whatnot. Kind of makes me wonder if they have one person in the tribe that's in charge of not tying. I would imagine that lots of people, if not most of the people in the tribe, have that skill. They have a fire tender. They probably have a rope master, someone who spends all day making ropes out of plant fibers and then teaches everybody else how to tie them up together. So that person probably probably had a field day being told, okay, you need to tie these people up so that they can't move. And so they tied them around the torso and tied their wrists and ankles. And I think Savannah actually has her shins tied to her thighs in some sort of configuration there. So these people are tied eight ways to Sunday. Yeah, Savannah looks pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. Because you're right. It does look like her shins are tied to her thighs. Her shins are covered. Her thighs are not. Right. So those ropes are right against her skin in a very uncomfortable position with your knees being bent like that and being unable to stretch them out. Mm -hmm. Her knees are going to hurt so bad. Although she's not old like me, so maybe it won't be so bad. Yeah. (laughs) I do appreciate that whoever put them in there made sure that there were fires, made sure that there were fires nearby so that way they could stay warm. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of nice. There are other things in my notes for today, but I 
kind of want to put a pin in today's minute and we'll pick up with the stuff that I was going to say on Wednesday. So when we come back on Wednesday, it's going to be revealed that Screwloose is about, he's lurking, and when the sun rises the next day, we're going to find out that Screwloose, his lurking, has yielded some results. So come on back then and we'll see how that goes. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Public storefront by clicking the store link join our patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link thank you for joining us for minute 67 of beyond thunderdome we'll see you next time Everybody say-